This is an ABC podcast. In a typical day, say a work day, how much of your time do you spend actually thinking about and doing the tasks that you're meant to be doing? Or do you find your mind easily wanders? We're wandering for about half of our waking hours. So half of our waking hours, our mind is not where our body is. And I think this is amazing when you think about it. I mean, half of the time when my kids talk to me, when my friends talk to me, when I have to watch a lecture or a movie, (laughs) half of the time my mind is somewhere else. So this is uh, (laughs) sensational, I think. And it sounds pretty bad, right? Like who doesn't want to be more present for their kids or focused on their work? But neuroscientist Professor Moshe Barr says that's not the whole story. One of the things that made me have more new friends now is because I kind of read people of the guilt feeling the society has instilled in us as in mind wandering is a waste of time or you're being lazy or this student in class that's, you know, staring at the ceiling and and we all think it's a bad thing that Mm -hmm. they cannot keep focus or whatever. But then when we realize how constructive mind wandering is by and large, unless they're clinical situations, then we actually as society should encourage it. This is actually a creative and a productive process that we should nurture, not uh, suppress. So what are the constructive things our minds do when they wander? And when does mind wandering cross into not-so-constructive territory? You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. This summer, we're sharing some of our favourite episodes of the year. The best of the best. So today, what the mind does when it wanders. I want to start with a quick detour and talk about the discovery of the default mode network. Mind wandering is a function of this network in the brain, but interestingly, it was discovered by accident about 20 years ago. Yeah, so um, people have heard about MRI, magnetic resonance imaging, use it in the hospitals, and a big advance was uh, the development of what we call functional MRI. So this helps us look into humans' brains uh, while they are working uh, active and, and humans are looking at pictures or counting verbs or doing whatever, and we can actually look at their brains while they do the things we ask them to do. And in between these experimental conditions, we used to tell them just to rest. Implicitly, we assume that their brain is really resting when we tell them to rest. But gradually, we started to notice when people uh, decide to look at what happens in this rest period, we realized that actually there's a massive network of brain regions that are vigorously active when we are actually not supposed to be busy with anything. We realized from this discovery that the brain by default is very active and in a very consistent network that since then has been dubbed the default mode network. So this really helps, you know, if you believe in nature and evolution and you realize how much energy such activity requires, you understand that there must be some reason for this. And mm. this really was the firing, the, like the starting uh, uh, shot for uh, let's explain what this activity is. Why is the brain so active and we're not doing anything? This is a question that's long fascinated Professor Moshe Bar. He's a cognitive neuroscientist at Bar Ilan University in Israel, and he's the author of the book Mind Wandering How It Can Improve Your Mood and Boost Your Creativity. And so, what do we know? What is the activity and how does it relate to mind wandering? Yeah, so. People do talk about uh, three main functions to this uh, default network. So one of them is representing the self. 
So your representation of your own self, you know, your history, your affinities, your the things you desire, the things that you fear, things that you want to achieve, how do you hold yourself, how do you think you would respond to different situations. This entire, entire entity that we carry ourselves, even if we're not always conscious of, is the self, and, and it starts when we're little kids, and it uh, evolves but uh, remains at its core very similar. Part of this representation of self involves how you talk to yourself in your head. So it's, you know, you're critical of yourself or you're proud of yourself. So it does it does give the impression that we have two individuals inside and kind of uh, one is like the stern, you know, father uh, wants some uh, certainty and, and maturity and decisions. And there is the youngster that wants to just have fun and be impulsive and do all these uh, things. So the dialogue is usually between these two characters. Uh, it is part of the self, but the self overall is more uh, inclusive in the sense that it includes your history, your personality. It's really your core. It's the person you see in the mirror. <laughs> the second thing is that we also use it for what is called theory of mind. So our theorizing about the intentions and the thoughts and the minds of others. So when somebody approaches you, you try to figure out what's in their mind. Uh, when somebody tells you something, you try to understand what, what does he mean? What does he really mean? What is, how should I respond to this? So you're really theorizing about somebody else's mind because it's so important for our uh, functioning and our survival, of course. Mm. And the third aspect that's been associated with the default network is this uh, associative thinking, the creative process or just uh, the simulations and the plannings that we, we create in our mind. And by simulations, I mean we run all these little scenarios of things that might happen, kind of a possible alternative futures. So we're constantly busy with doing all these things together. And why do we do that last one in particular? What are we um, trying to work through with that? So uh, it took us some time to realize that the main role of memory is not really for us to reminisce on uh, good or bad memories, but it's really to serve the future. We constantly reach to our memory to get ready for things that are ahead of us. We actually want to know as much as possible about what's coming next. And mm. I'm not talking about the stock market or a major uh, sport event, but rather, you know, what would happen if I drop these keys on the floor? What mm. would be the sound, the sights? What would happen if I don't wait for this truck to cross the road? So in order to be able to generate these predictions so that we can minimize uncertainty in our environment, we have to reach back to previous experiences that are stored in memory and use them as the building blocks for imagining the future. So even you know, the most mundane things like uh, entering a kitchen that you've never seen before and you're already prepared for objects that you know might appear there in a certain arrangement or how to behave in a museum even if you haven't been to this specific museum before. We constantly reach back to our experience and use this to generate a future that will help us maximize our success and minimize uncertainty. But the weird thing is, not only do we generate simulations based on our memories of past experience, when our mind wanders, we also learn from scenarios that have never even happened. So most of our memories are based on real experiences. So you know that you touched a fire when you were three, and since then you don't get close to fire. You know it's going to hurt you. You don't have to mm. try it every time fresh. But we can also imagine new scenarios. And I can give you a, a simple scenario. You know, would you like to have a sandwich with... Uh, 
strawberry jam and sardines. <laughs> here, <laughs> so here you don't really have experience to lean on, but you have the elements of this experience. So you create a new scenario and then you realize, mm-hmm. no, I don't want to eat this. Thank you very much. <laughs> exactly. And, and the idea here is that Okay, maybe maybe this wasn't the best example for this specific purpose, but I did uh, provide in the book a funny example of me sitting in an airplane one day reviewing a scientific paper and uh, while being bored, my mind was uh, kind of drifting and I landed on uh, with my eyes and my mind on the emergency door and immediately started to imagine what would happen if this door opens right now. We're all going to fly out. Then we need parachute. I don't have a parachute. I have a blanket on my lap, so I'll ho- hold this as a parachute. But then the parachute would need some holes, otherwise I'll lose it with the wind, so I'll make holes and I'll use this pen to make the hole. <laughs> so it's a funny and a crazy story, and the chance of it actually happening in reality, let's say, was less than 1%. And our simulations are not always about such catastrophes. But nevertheless, the result of this simulation is a scenario that can help me act if something like what I imagine happens. So not only that we can learn from our experiences, like the little uh, flame that you touched as a kid, but also we're storing imagined memories. Mm. And and, and here you see that we have these amazing brains that can simulate possible alternatives, finds the best one and stores it in memory in case you encounter it. How often are we aware of all this that's going on in our brain? Yeah, it, it's a good question. And actually, mind-wandering is notorious for having a mind of its own, so to speak. It's really a wild beast that that <laughs> is uh, not privy to our, uh, or not uh, subject to our uh, conscious will or conscious uh, intention. So you can't really tell yourself, let's start mind-wandering now. And you cannot tell yourself, let's stop mind-wandering now. So that said, we can gain, mm. and I'm elaborating on this in the book, we can gain increased awareness and ability to recognize what is it that we do and maybe direct and at least uh, create the scenarios or the conditions that there are circumstances that will maximize the chances of a productive mind wandering. But we really are rarely able to control it. That said, you know, once uh, you're done wandering, you we often are aware of the fact that we just went, you know, we were drifted for the last uh, two minutes and we just uh, returned. But <laughs> we do remember the content of our mind wandering very often. Yeah. Is it like when sometimes I might have a whole conversation in my head, imagining a scenario and sort of just running with what might unfold? Is it that kind of thing? You mean that actually you see what you plan to see? Or? Well, yeah. I mean, you imagine having a conversation with someone and how it would go and what you would say and what they yeah. might say. Uh-huh. And- uh-huh. Uh-huh. <laughs> How clever you yeah. would be. Exactly. Well, sometimes you do it so efficiently that you don't bother to execute the actual conversation, right? I mean, especially <laughs> if you know somebody well enough, it's like, I will say this and then, then he'll say that and I'll say that. Okay, forget about it. <laughs> so yes, uh, it's very natural that we do that. Yeah. So are these three prongs, you know, reflecting on the individual self, theory of mind and sort of thinking about the future, are those the three things that count as mind wandering? Well, mind wandering is really a collection of processes that all of them uh, probably can fall under these uh, three overarching themes, but it does include daydreaming, it includes fantasizing, but it also includes 
creative thinking that we really like this, uh, you know, incubation and creative thinking, associative thinking. It also contains things like ruminations, that the hallmark of depression and other mood disorders when we're stuck cyclically around a similar topic over and over and over mm. and we gr- just grind it. So this is known to promote not necessarily depression immediately, but, but uh, deteriorated feelings. So anxiety is, uh, uh, is just a, another form of rumination, just about the future. So all this, there, there could be some, some not, I don't want to say clinical or pathological, mm. but uh, less desired kind of wandering. So really, it's a host of processes that take place over there. Yeah, is that when mind wandering becomes a problem when it crosses over into rumination? Yes. Then this is the type of mind wandering that you don't want to encourage, <laughs> and you, you want to, but you can't just tell yourself, "Let's stop ruminating." Mm. So it, it's very complex. How how would you kind of kind of guide your thought? And we're notorious for doing the exact opposite of what we're being instructed. So in famous experiments, when people were asked not to think about white bears, this was the only thing they were thinking about. So mm. telling yourself, "Let's stop ruminating." Is futile, but there are methods around it, and we try in the lab to kind of alleviate some of this. Professor Barr describes rumination as a kind of narrow mind wandering. And rumination, of course, has a negative impact on our mood. Conversely, his research has found more broad range mind wandering can help improve our mood. And to understand what he means by narrow and broad, it helps to know a bit about how memory works. Professor Barr describes everything we know as being connected by a giant net. So imagine your memory, everything you know is connected in memory in one giant net. It's a giant semantic net and everything has to be connected to something. You don't have any floating representations in your mind that no one can reach. Even as something as like a, as weird as a book and a mango or a helicopter and a screwdriver, <laughs> you can find a connection. So everything is connected. Try to imagine. This is where, as he continued talking, my mind kind of wandered to go and connect book and mango, and I thought about the book A Case of Exploding Mangoes by Muhammad Hanif, and I thought, ah, oh, okay, that's what he means. My memory has all these disparate elements, and it can connect them. Cool. Anyways, back to Professor Barr. Try to imagine in your mind's eye this uh, giant network of things you know and things that are related. Uh, our thinking process is really akin to jumping on in this network or walking in this network from one node to the rest, to the next and then to the next and then to the next. So this is the pattern that your stream of thought is really walking on this uh, giant net. So you can be walking in different ways in this uh, net. You can be close and stay in circles. So let's say I made a bad example last night over dinner with friends and I keep beating myself about it and I keep going over it uh, in circles. What, what are they going to think about it? What are the implications? She's going to stop being my friend. Why am I so such a loser? Why, did I, why couldn't I control myself? I just go over and over and over around the same topic. So this is narrow thinking because you don't expand your exploration of this giant network and you just stay with the same same vicinity. So this is narrow thinking and, and at the end it's a really circular and it's ruminative. Mm. The other extreme is really being broad and this is best uh, example. It's really creative states of thinking where actually you're walking or jumping on this network is more remote. So you jump from one word to a, a far a remote association. So 
I'll give you an example. So if, if you have to think about a, a means of transportation, most people would say car. But if you're in a creative mode, you might be able to say elevator or a camel, <laughs> right? So all these are also means of transportation, not the first thing that comes to mind because they are more remote, they are more original. But in order to uh, foster creative thinking, we really need to be thinking about those remote associations and those unexpected connections that we make because they're unexpected because they're not mundane, they're not uh, tried uh, associations, but rather more surprising, uh, more original. Yeah, and you've done this in the lab, haven't you, where you, um, you know, encourage someone to broaden their thinking using broad word associations and then improve their mood through that? Can you explain that? So, yes, we realized that broader thinking improves mood. And the rationale here was really because just observing people with depression and realizing that rumination is so tightly connected with depression, let's try to unruminate them and see if it affects their mood. So this was the rationale. And really the idea was very simple. We had people read lists of words and the list of words divided into two groups. In one group, the list of words were associative but very narrow and they didn't have to be negative like the bad remark I said before. It's more like we can start with the dog and then bark and then doghouse and then chain and then bone and then tail. So everything is neutral here emotionally but still you remain within the same vicinity of your semantic network. In the second group, we had the same kind of chains, but this time the associations were more remote. So it's a dog, and then it's cat, mouse, Mickey Mouse, Walt Disney, Los Angeles, <laughs> Donald Trump, and uh, everything is legitimate. These are all legitimate associations in both conditions, but in one of them, the steps you make are much further. And we realized, and we found, this was the hypothesis, but then also the result that has been replicated many times since, that when people think more broadly, and, and more creatively, then their mood improves. And I do want to uh, maybe cool down the excitement by, by saying that when we say that their mood improves, it's not that you can take somebody who's uh, severely depressed mm. and have them read a few uh, lists of words and then they leave the lab giddy and happy <laughs> and, and everything. Uh, it's really uh, it's an uphill battle, but we do improve mood significantly. So what's interesting about this connection, if I may, is that it turned out to be reciprocal. So people much before us have shown that individuals in good mood are more creative. By and large, you know, it's like you can't really make everything 100%. There are always exceptions. But the idea here is that people in good mood are more creative. Mm -hmm. And we, we showed the other direction where we can make people more creative and more associative. We improve their mood. So this is really goes in both directions. I mean, that's really surprising that, you know, simply reading a string of words can improve your mood. Like right. what, what's going on to make that change possible? It's funny, I used to tell my students that it, this is like you listen to somebody with a different accent uh, than yours, like you listen to me now, and and then I notice that after this person leaves, I, my thoughts continue to, th to, to speak to me in his... Uh, accent so it's like I, I suddenly think in French accent and I, I think it's it's the same way that the external environment can actually affect your inner processes like thinking so even somebody with a narrow thinking pattern having them read this expanding list of words shows that their thought is expanding and then also that their mood is improving so this was uh, I mean, your question is well put because it, it is really pretty interesting that just by reading it can affect your thinking, but it is a, a fact that it works. So for those of us listening who might be feeling a bit, you know, 
down one day if if we want to help improve our moods would a good way to do that be reading really broad associations of words yes, you know like yes. is there a clinical application here well first of all we have a company a startup company that works on exactly these things are trying to improve uh, mood by by changing the way you think not the content but really the, the expensiveness of it but other than that yes I mean in the, in the book I put an appendix at the end of uh, kind of semi-practical tips I didn't really want to make them more specific because there's an individual component here mm-hmm. but just general directions of the science that can be applied in everyday life and one of the main uh, aspect is how to improve your mood through these other connections that we found in the brain between mood and creativity, mood and exploration. So the idea is really to try to uh, manipulate your mood rather than telling yourself, I should feel better, which of course is not helpful in Mm. any way, is try to, by by being aware of these correlations that we found, you say, okay, maybe being engaged in a creative uh, problem solving now will also improve my mood. Or, and beyond, you know, self-help, I can also say that just recognizing it. So over the years and with my research and what I know by now, I can recognize what state I'm in and I know what kind of goals or what kind of tasks are, are best for this. So if I'm in extremely good mood and I'm hyperactive, this is not the right time for me to sit down and write the next paragraph in a paper I work on. <laughs> it's really a good, actually, uh, opportunity for, for lying down and mind-wandering because the, this expensive and, and creative type of thinking elicits a very creative uh, mind-wandering, and this is the type that we do want to encourage. You're listening to All in the Mind. I'm Sana Kadar. Today, what the mind does when it wanders. Learning to become aware of the nature of his thoughts has been a process for Professor Moshe Barr. Despite being a cognitive neuroscientist, he says for a long time he hadn't actually stopped to consider his own mind. The catalyst for him becoming more aware was mindful meditation. For your 50th birthday, you went on a meditation retreat. Um, Can you tell me what you discovered about yourself and your thoughts during that trip? Yeah, so this was a big revelation for me that, you know, on a personal level. So first of all, I have to uh, say that when I decide to go on this retreat, I decide very explicitly that I'm not going to be a scientist there. So I don't want to be a critical, skeptical scientist just rolling my eyes with every hippie suggestion (laughs) I hear there, but rather just to give in and see what is it all about. And I think I'm, I'm very happy with this decision because it kind of removed, removed obstacles that uh, and kind of objections to, to the practice. I really came there to study it. And, you know, when people first tell you that, uh, uh, you know, take a deep breath and start observing your thoughts, it's really hard for you to understand what, what does it mean to observe my thoughts. But it is a practice that is easily acquired. I don't want anybody that listened here to think that you really need 10,000 of practice hours before <laughs> you actually see benefits. Those things that I've encountered were already in the first retreat. So just a few hours already help you understand that you can modify the perspective with which you look and consider your thoughts. I think the majority of us, for the majority of the time, are really passengers in this figurative um, train of thoughts that mm. we're just riding are we happy now are we sad now we think about this we think about that yeah, our train of thought actually pulls us in in the direction that it wants but you can also be an observer and and this is you know just uh, when people tell you about this initially they sound lunatic but then you realize that you can <laughs> do this and it's not such a big 
uh, effort. So you can actually be a bystander, like somebody standing in a station and watching this train. So then you realize that you can look at your process of thinking. And I, I, you know, I sat there realizing that in my 50 years until then, I didn't stop for a moment. And you know, even for a brain scientist, this is even more uh, outrageous that I haven't done this before, that really let's go inside my brain and, and see what is it thinking about? Where did it come from? And where is it going and why? So this practice, it was a source of a lot of revelations of kind of, okay, now I understand uh, more about my thinking and I can take different perspectives and, and, you know, be immersed in my thoughts or be more mindful of them. And once you're mindful of them, you can actually do things with them. Things like labeling them and categorizing them. For example, Professor Barr would ask himself whether the thought he was having was positive, negative or neutral whether it was about the past, present, or future, and whether it was about himself, others, or both. By this, help them disappear or be filed in the right uh, memory folder in, in your brain. So this gives you control, some control. Again, we cannot really control our thinking process, and I think it's good that we cannot, but uh, it helps you really sort things out (laughs) and minimize those that you don't really uh, need to think about or want to think about Mm -hmm. and and uh, focus on those interesting thoughts and by the way uh, i just said that um, not thinking about what you don't want we have to actually acknowledge also things such as trauma that in in many clinical situations it's require much heavier machinery than just playing with Mm. perspective of thinking so somebody with a diagnosed trauma is actually uh, going to have a hard time Uh, i mean this is a real problem it's not something that can be uh, remedied by just sitting on a pillow and thinking about uh, other things. Mm. So the clinical cases require much more, but but the retreat itself helped me realize that I can observe my thoughts, I can label them, categorize them, and by this actually understand more about their source and also put them aside. And that's why I also recommend to anybody, not only brain scientists, I think we can gain a lot by understanding our thinking, because our thinking is really, you know, it's, to a large extent, this is who we are. So. Uh, we need to understand better what's going on there and what you know what bothers us, what makes us feel better. So it's really a key to happiness and key to productive creativity, being able to focus on our own thoughts. And what practices from your research have you incorporated into your daily life? There are many of them, and and most of them are pretty small. So I, I am able to recognize my state of mind, and it helped me being a better parent. You know, just uh, realizing that. I shouldn't be upset because you know this is a state that I'm in and it's not anybody's fault so nobody can or or understanding the fact that my mind drifts and everybody around me is is accustomed to this and and it's more forgiving because they know I can be drifting for so often I think I'm not unique in that sense all of us as we said half of the time we're somewhere else so being able to accommodate this and actually encourage it when it's good time for this not when I'm driving really fast on the freeway but rather when I sit in the living room and I can actually develop some interesting thoughts Uh, and there are also little things when I know that I wander so much and I know that if I go on a run or I walk I can fill up my working memory so to speak with topics before I go out the door that will increase the likelihood that I'll be thinking about and wondering about things that interest me rather than the, you know, paying the bills I just did and, and this will be the last thing stuck in my mind while I'm running. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to ruminate on my bills. I want to <laughs> ruminate on an interesting issue, yeah. And finally, for people listening or, you know, people who read your book, if there's one 
key thing you want people to understand about how their minds work? What is it? Well, I think the dynamic of our state is something that uh, is, if I really, you, you're forcing me to choose one baby here <laughs> out of all these babies I have there. But yes, it, that, that we're more dynamic in our mind and, and this has deep effects on how we feel and how we experience. So it might sound trivial on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, think about the pupil in the eye. So it really, it changes its dimensions depending on the level of lights in the room. So this is just light and just the pupil, and it's so beautifully adaptive to what's going on around you. So realizing that you can be experiencing your environment in radically different ways, depending on your own state, uh, this is something that I would love it for people to take. That's Professor Moshe Bar, cognitive neuroscientist from Bar Ilan University in Israel, and author of the book Mind Wandering How It Can Improve Your Mood and Boost Your Creativity. That's it for All in the Mind. Our producer is James Bullen. Sound engineer this week was Roy Huberman. I'm Sana Kadar. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.